Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. I am so excited about this interview, really happy to share it with you, because in this episode, I speak to the Vice President of Design at Slack, Ethan Eisman. He and his team are focused on creating products that help make people's working lives more simple, pleasant, and productive. Before Slack, Ethan led Airbnb's design team focused on home sharing. That's one of Airbnb's core revenue streams. And before that, Ethan was the head of design at Uber and head of commerce design at Google. So he's got a pretty impressive resume. In this episode, he dives into the details of how product design happens at Slack. From their rapid prototyping to getting customers involved as co-creators, and of course, prioritizing those moments of delight that you interact with throughout the product. There's a lot to learn here for all of us. Enjoy. App developers spend way too much time testing and troubleshooting their mobile apps for them to be perfect. Those days are now over. Introducing Headspin for mobile. With Headspin's new all-in-one platform, you can now automate testing, monitor performance, and analyze user experience of your apps on real SIM-enabled devices and actual Wi-Fi and carrier networks anywhere in the world. No SDK required. Learn more about the Headspin Global Device Cloud at headspin.io. Ethan, thank you so much for being on Product Hunt Radio today. I must say we get a lot of emails from different tech companies who are interested in partnering with us on the show. And when I got the email from your teammate, Sam, about getting you on the show, I was just like, oh my God, this is so exciting just to have anyone from Slack, to be honest, because my whole life experience working at Product Hunt, being a remote team is pretty much spent existing in your product. Slack. <laughs> um, so I know our community are big fans too, but it would just be great to hear from you about your role in the company. Absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having me. I am a big fan of, of Product Hub myself, so it's an honor to be here. I head up the design team at Slack, uh, and I've been at Slack for about seven months now. So it's been a, a wonderful uh, seven months uh, leading into some really exciting times that we've been encountering over the last few weeks, of course. So uh, a bit more about my background and prior to Slack, I have been leading product design uh, at various teams for the past 15 years. Uh, I cut my teeth initially as a designer at Adobe. Wow, amazing. Yeah, this was way back uh, in the early 2000s. Um, And so I uh, was a a designer who was very interested in prototyping. Uh, I actually worked on a number of early products at Adobe um, prior to Adobe XD, which is a a tool that allows people to create prototypes. But this was back when uh, Flash and Flex existed. And so I I worked on a wide range of products that that really tried to help uh, creative professionals express themselves uh, faster and more easily. And at Adobe, I then started leading some teams. And before I left, I led the design for the Creative Cloud, which was Adobe's move to a subscription-based model, which has really helped that company from a business perspective. And that introduced me to the pure business impact of design, which then nice. excited me to yeah to, to move on, where I, I moved on to Google, and I was there for about four and a half years. At Google, I focused on their commerce products. So this was uh, their payments uh, products, Google Wallet, Google Pay, shopping, uh, as well as travel. And so you probably use Google Flights. Uh, it's an awesome product. 
Um, I oh, led, very, very useful. <laughs> yep. Yep. I love the design uh, for, for that and, uh, and their, their range of commerce products. After Google, I joined Uber. Uh, and the, the real goal there was that I wanted to work at a company that was a bit smaller than Adobe, uh, as well as Google, and work at a company where they were a, experiencing a, a rapid level of growth. And I was excited about the impact that I could have at a smaller company uh, that was growing. I could leverage the things that I had learned at, at larger organizations. So by the time I left Uber in 2017, I was leading a uh, design team, which included researchers, content strategists, design engineers, prototypers, product designers. It was a team of over uh, 200 people, um, quite a wow. large team. Yeah. So that's, that was the experience with rapid growth there. Uh, I, I ended up leaving Uber in 2017 and I went to Airbnb, uh, where I was inspired by the mission of the company for people to belong everywhere. It was very interesting to me. And and furthermore, I was very interested in working with Brian Chesky, who is, you know, one of the few CEOs in He's a designer. Uh, he's a designer, <laughs> exactly. And um so I was I was really, you know, interested in working in a company where design mattered. You know, design was at the core of the company's mission. And so that was an amazing experience. I was there for uh, just about 2 years. I led the the design team that focused on homes, which is responsible for over 90% of Airbnb's revenue. It's their primary business. Um, and then during my time at Airbnb, I took on GM responsibilities for the guest team. So this is the um, team that focuses on the the end user consumer experience um, for Got home. It. Yeah. So I sat on the other side of the table and had a role as a team operator for about nine months, which was a fascinating experience for a, a designer by training to focus on. And uh, yeah, after two years at Airbnb, I was really excited by Slack um, and the mission at the company to make people's working lives easier, uh, more productive and more pleasant. And I was excited by the the product and team challenges that were presented. And so that's what I've been doing for the last seven months is helping uh, Slack attain that mission. It's incredible. Your, your resume reads like a who's who of all the cool tech brands. Um, it's pretty awesome that you have timed things in such a way that you could be a part of all the incredible inflection points around growth. And of course, product development, as you played a role in it across all of these big companies from Adobe to Google to Uber, uh, Airbnb, and of course, now at Slack. And I think what's so interesting about your experiences is this really interesting intersection between consumer facing products and B2B products. And you've had experience across the two. I thought it'd be really interesting for you to share a bit more insight into, you know, into what you have learned working across consumer products and B2B products and how that's played into how you design things at Slack. And just, you know, before I let you jump into that, when we had Brianne Kimmel on the show, so she's a general partner at Work Life Ventures, you know, invests heavily in SaaS and actually ran Zendesk for startups before she became an investor. She spoke of how to be a very successful B2B product now, you really have to bring in all of those wonderful aesthetics that consumer facing products have been doing for a while, but have been missing from the enterprise space. So I'd love to hear your sort of input on this and see if that echoes some of the thoughts that she shared. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I really appreciate the perspective that Brianne is bringing to the, uh, to the, the industry. Um, I think it's a, it's a very useful perspective and it, it's going to help move things forward significantly. Um, and it's important that we have people who are, pushing on the sort of expectations that we have for SaaS products in terms of their design. So just as sort of a side note, in my experience with uh, software design and technology, 
you know, it really takes people who are willing to push the boundaries of, of what's expected in order for us to have these significant leaps forward. One of the most revolutionary points uh, in, uh, I think, the experience of software design was with uh, OS X, right? With that launch, we had movement that was incorporated into the base operating system that millions of people were using. Prior to that, animations and motion weren't even really part of the consideration of the experience of computing. And Apple really pushed forward with, with that. That, that to me was was a you know really incredible point. Remember the the dock was now animating, <laughs> right? Yes. It was simple, but it, it introduced this new set of expectations into the minds of people who are using software. And then you know soon after the iPhone came out, and that was just a, a radical paradigm shift in terms of people's expectation for the experience of their software again. And so, you know what Brianna has been talking about is how can we bring more of a consumer feel into enterprise software? How can we introduce game dynamics to make enterprise software a bit more engaging. And I entirely welcome that challenge (laughs) into uh, the greater marketplace of ideas. And I'm excited to see what companies do with that. And so how does that feed into the approach you've decided to take at Slack? Because you have this you know, unique perspective to approach design quite holistically, having been at all these different brands and all all these different pivotal times. And, you know, as a power user of Slack, (laughs) you know, this is literally where we are all the time. We don't use internal emails. So, you know, this is our home, our hub. It is so much more fun than any other work tool that has been essential to my career, because it feels like this sort of app that I might download anyway. Certainly the way I'm interacting with it, playful little elements like having hummus as a notification sound. Um, so I'd love to hear more about, you know, you know, the the thought processes behind your design principles and your approach. Yeah. So I you know, I'll I'll talk I'll I'll talk about both how we're focusing at Slack on our approach to design and building product. Um, but I'll also get back to your original question around some of the insights from designing for consumers as well as uh, B2B. So first of all, I think there's some, some universal principles uh, for product design and development. And, and I don't think of these as just product design principles. I, I truly think of these as the way of um, building product. You know, whether you're an engineer, a product manager, a data scientist, a researcher, a uh, operator, a designer, these are important principles for us all to consider. So first is make it simple every step of the way. You know, this is probably one of the most important, which is that when you're thinking about your product, consider that people only have so many cognitive calories to spend at any given moment that they're encountering the thing that you're offering. And so, you know, if you have a complex product, that could be okay as long as you break it down into simple concepts that people can can consume. So every moment that they're interacting with your product. And it's important to try to make each step as easy to understand as possible. And to get back to some of the things that I think Brianna has been saying, if you can make them entertaining, right? You're introducing this new functionality or this new set of values doesn't mean you have to do so in a way that's complex or dry. You can make it entertaining. And so if you're actually making something of value to someone and you make each step as easy to po- as possible, then you at least have a chance, you have a, a small chance that people will experience the value that your product actually delivers, and that will get them hooked on it. So that's the first, uh, first principle, is just make it simple every step of the way. 
The second principle is really to put your customers first and focus on genuinely solving their problems. So I can't say this one enough because when teams are focused on crunching and building something as quickly as possible, or even when, you know, we're faced with the events of the world today, and it's, you know, really important for us to monitor our own team's health, you know, you ultimately are building a product for your customers, and you need to spend time visiting them, getting closer to them, deeply understanding their needs, and forgetting about what you and your team thinks are really important. That's like a really hard challenge because you obviously have an opinion. It's your product. You know, you're the one who you know, has like has the dream and the vision. But at the same time, it's critically important to have a perspective on what your customers need and really an ability to listen to their needs. Your customers will oftentimes tell you where you need to focus. You know, if they've They have uh, these unsatisfied needs. They have deep wants and desires. They will essentially tell you the path. It's also important that you do maintain a perspective when listening to your customers so that you're not just following what they say. Uh, Instead, you're interpreting what they say. You're synthesizing it. You're determining what the best path is for you and your company and your product's direction. But at the same time, you're incorporating the the customer's desires and their wants and their needs into your, your way of thinking about building the product. So that's the that's the second universal principle. It's just pe- putting your customers first and and genuinely focusing on solving their problems. Now, I think when we talk about the difference between consumer products and B2B products, one thing that that I've grown to realize is that oftentimes consumer products are about they they are oftentimes not so much about getting your work done or a specific like focus on being productive in a specific way. They're often not very much about energy and about the way they make you feel and whether they, you know, give you a sense of, of fun or um, playfulness. And so that's when I think about, you know, one of the big differences between consumer products and, and more B2B products, it's really that like level of energy that is brought into the design of consumer products. And historically, that level of energy was not necessarily permitted or seem as is is been as acceptable in terms of building for um, SaaS or enterprise products or B2B products. Now, I think that's definitely changing and it's great that it's changing, but that has been a big differentiator. And, you know, on the flip side, oftentimes B2B products are really they're about like they're, they're tools that people are building to get their work done. So, for example, at Adobe, you know, when we're designing tools to help people uh, accomplish creative tasks, we're really focused on more of the micro, the second by second ergonomics of the product, mm. about the micro interaction design, how dragging a, a tool icon might elegantly introduce a whole new set of filters or how to most efficiently change the font size and style or how to change color. It's all about how to express yourself creatively more efficiently. And when we think about designing for Slack, we're doing the same sort of thing. We're really focusing on some of those micro interactions. How can we make it as easy as possible for somebody to respond efficiently and effectively with information or share information with folks or search for that one piece of information that they're really looking for? And so really, when you're designing for tools, right, when you're designing, and that's what I think about when I think about B2B, it's really tools. You're designing to connect connect people's intention for creativity or expressivity. Um, We're doing that um, in a way that gives people superpowers so that ideally they're able to achieve more than they imagined uh, by using the tools that you provide them. 
And that's a really hard thing to, to accomplish. You know, when you, when you think about the ergonomic complexity of using software, and then you think about the opportunity to ease that, but then couple that with great technology that then allows people to do things they never thought were possible. To me, that is really one of the most interesting things that we can focus on in software. And so when we're, we're designing for tools, that's one of the main, that's one of the main focuses. How can you really give people superpowers? I, lo- I love that. <laughs> yeah. So, so interestingly, one of the interesting challenges is that when you're designing for tools, you oftentimes don't bring in that energy that you see in consumer facing products. And what's interesting about Slack is that it is a, it's a tool. It's a tool that's used by people to be massively productive because it's a tool for work. However, there are certain interventions into it as a tool that then allow for this direct expression of energy. And so I think that's one of the reasons why people often say that Slack is one of those enterprise-grade tools that at the same time has more of a consumer feel. Absolutely. I love this framework you've given us to consider the key differences between consumer-facing software and business-facing software, and that is optimizing for productivity. So optimizing for the specific task and how to get that done as efficiently as possible versus optimizing for how you want the individual interacting with it to feel. And it feels like the tension you hold on to is balancing those two as you develop Slack. Is that correct? Well, it's mostly correct. I wouldn't necessarily say there's a tension between them. I would say okay, interesting. we just we just balance them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's why it works in Slack because we we actually don't have a a challenge integrating the energy or the considerations for how to create a level of like more personal expression uh, and more humanistic expression into Slack. One of the reasons why I think is because Slack is fundamentally a platform for people to collaborate. And when you have humans in the same spot together and you give them tools to express themselves, they're going to express themselves. And so what we oftentimes focus on is, you know, how can we how can we provide uh, the right level of expressive tools that make sure that the conversation happens in, in, in a way that's you know positive. But I think an, an additional important point about how we how we do product at Slack is really around prototyping. So this is a, this is, I think, a, a, a principle that is somewhat unique to Slack because it, it really informs the way that we go about the product development process. Um, and we focus on what we call prototyping the path. And what this means is that as a product team, when we uh, are, are seeking to create a new feature, we acknowledge that uh, there is really no way that we can predict how that feature will be used by our customers because we have customers who range from small organizations who have just started using Slack to you know massive companies like IBM who are all using Slack right now. And we have different industries that are using Slack at different companies across the world uh, with different, uh, different corporate cultures. And so Slack is this multiplayer environment um, that makes it almost impossible for us to predict how a feature will be used when we actually move it out into the world. And so, so that's what we do. We prototype features. We, we quickly develop, um, you know, go from the process of, of writing down what we think the feature might be able to accomplish for our users, what problems it might solve, to rapidly iterating on sketches, you know, that oftentimes are very, very loose and wireframey and that move 
quickly into Figma. And then we are uh, very quickly working with our engineering teams. In fact, we invite our engineers into the prototyping process. So they're drawing with us and we create relatively um, rough versions of the product, which we then can get into the hands of our customers, which I'd love to talk with you about that process. But we get it into our hands of our customers uh, with the acknowledgement that this is a prototype. They play with it. We play with it. We get feedback from them. uh, We gather the feedback and we iterate. Uh, and then we continue to move forward uh, with that process. And we get to the the feature to a point where we feel like it's where it's absolutely good enough. And that's when we uh, will actually release it. Amazing. And when you say rapid, talk us through what a kind of cadence might look like. How quick are we talking here from ideation to actually looking at uh, designs you can play around with, getting the engineers involved as well, like you said? Yeah, so... We've started to develop some best practices for prototyping, and I can share a few of those with you. And we actually use these best practices when we were in the process of uh, redesigning Slack, which you know we're 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 about to release um, this new uh, design for the for Slack's overarching information architecture that is introducing some fairly significant changes. This is one of the biggest updates um, that we've made in in the history of Slack to the to the experience, and so we wanted to make sure that. Uh, we really understood the impact of these changes. And in fact, we wanted to go beyond understanding the impact. We wanted to go through a process of co-creation with our customers. Some of the the, the best practices that we established uh, to kick off this, this process was first making sure that we have an environment that that can actually support it. And so we've done a lot of work with our with our tech stack, especially on desktop, to make it possible for engineers to very rapidly design and develop. And so because of the way that our tech stack works, we are able to work with engineers on almost an hourly basis to update aspects of a design and deploy it in real time. Then we can just use it wow. with data. So when we talk about rapid prototyping, I mean, we're talking about, you know, going from a whiteboard sketch to implementing that design within code and then testing with live data, like our, our own internal data stack at Slack within a matter of hours. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> very, very, very rapid, very, very rapid um, which is an absolute... I mean, I I guess I could call it a luxury. I've never had this ability at a company that I've worked with in the past. And this has always been sort of a dream of mine to be able to iterate with live data um, so rapidly. You know, it is the reality of our of our the way that our product works. Um, so that's the first the first bit is making sure that your environment can actually support it. Second is enrolling your engineering teams and really treating the engineering teams as if they are designers in the process and really elevating expectations the folks in the team. So great ideas can come from anybody. They don't have to come just from the design team. Um, and so we really encourage our engineers to to think outside of what they may have considered their role and to really be an owner in the product experience and come up with their own ideas for prototypes. That's where a lot of the real power comes in to play. Um, whenever we create a prototype, we always have a hypothesis for each of the iterations. And so you know, we will go through this process of quickly sketching it's oftentimes on a whiteboard or in in Figma. We'll then hand you know, basically like share it with the engineers. They'll be able to see what we're thinking, and we always will make sure we have a hypothesis. So as we're rapidly prototyping and coming up with these different iterations, we want to list out what we hope to learn from each iteration. Then we believe in documenting our learning. So we we try to keep a history of our prototypes that we can ideally play with again. And, and we will document the learning that comes along with each prototype. So we ideally are good librarians. We have a sort of a library of the past experiments that we've conducted and what we learned. 
you know, one thing that we've also learned is that it's okay to try wild ideas because sometimes those wild ideas yield the best results. And so we have prototype things that we have felt really wouldn't necessarily succeed, but we did it anyway to understand what the impact of that, of that, of that design might be and what the actual experience would teach us. And what that has allowed us to do is when we push the boundaries of what we think is actually practical or reasonable, it gives us even greater confidence that the direction that we're choosing is the right direction. So if you're able to prototype in a really low cost way and your engineers are enrolled with the process and you're okay with pushing the boundaries, you're not just learning about the right path, you're learning about the wrong path, which gives, gives you greater confidence in the right path. So that's, those are some sort of key insights. In addition to that, it's important to be patient with the process because it can be messy, right? You, you can sometimes loop back to where you started, right? You've gone down this path tested all these different iterations and you ultimately come back to the first one that you started with or one that was very close to the first one and that can feel chaotic and messy but that's okay you're you're again you're you're learning through the process of i wouldn't necessarily even call it failure but you're learning through the process of experimentation what the better result might be and then the last one which is so critical is really prototyping with your end users not just your core team because you can do it internally, that's that's great, you know. And and within Slack, we've got a diversity of perspectives that give us feedback. But really, your you know, the goal here is that you're creating something for the benefit of your customers. And so, if you can involve them in the process, if you can ensure that they are an actual, almost not necessarily a member of your design team, but they're able to co-create and see their feedback impact your directions and prototypes, and you can connect their feedback back to the change in the prototype, A, it gives you better information because you're actually talking to your customers and you know what they need and how they respond to the prototype. But B, what we found throughout the process of redesigning Slack is that it can actually develop a much deeper connection with your customers. Um, and it's it, it goes beyond just servicing um, their needs and wants and desires, but it goes into a mode of almost active listening where they hear they, 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 they really feel that you as a company are listening to their needs and then replaying back that in a form of a prototype to them that they can play around with and experiment with. And, 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 Amazing. Today's show is supported by Remote Health from Safety Wing. Remote Health is the first global health insurance built specifically for remote teams and entrepreneurs. Attract talent from anywhere in the world under one simple plan at the same price, no matter where they live or work. Sign up your company in about 10 minutes and easily add remote employees at any time. Check out safetywing.com forward slash remote hyphen health for more information. Protect your customers from fraud and identity theft with Embed ID, a front-end tool that ensures you collect the right data during account opening for identity verification in every country. With TrulyU Embed ID, all you have to do is copy and paste a snippet of code to verify the globe. Make sure you only let the good guys in while keeping the bad guys at bay by onboarding verified customers. Visit trulyu.com forward slash get embed ID. That's T-R-U-L-I-O-O dot com forward slash get E-M-B-E-D-I-D. 
I feel like there's so much uh, to unpack in what you shared around prototyping at Slack. I mean, a ton of really, really valuable information there. And I kind of just wanted to do like a quick recap for the makers who are listening. You talked about how you are in this incredible position to do really rapid prototyping because of how Slack is set up. You know, you can access the data. Your teams seem to be extremely agile. You can get designers involved. You can get engineers involved. And, you know, that first learning you pointed out was making sure that your environment can actually support rapid prototyping and working at that speed. You also talked about getting engineers involved really early. And, you know, I'm sort of reflecting on experiences here at Product Hunt. And, you know, typically it does start with product design. They'll get a few chances to like iterate. We can all share some feedback on Envision. But I love this idea of engineers also having input on what what the design should look like. And also that idea of having a hypothesis. So, you know, what do we think will be the outcome and then sort of using that as an anchor. Uh, And then exactly as you said, you know, to not be impatient when you're working at that speed, it's about experimenting and each, each iteration is an experiment and you might find yourself back to where you started, but you now have so, so many more learnings that you can leverage. Um, So I loved all of that. I just thought there was that in itself is like an essay (laughs) that could be really helpful for makers listening. And then the final point you ended on was this idea of co-creation. I love that. I I don't really hear that phrase a lot. Maybe you're the first person uh, I've heard it on, certainly on this show. Uh, And this idea of, you know, seeing your customers as your fellow creators, I would love to hear more about how you do that, how you can be so customer centric, because exactly as you said, you have everyone from, small communities to huge enterprise leveraging slack with you know equal benefit and how do you navigate bringing in all those diverse voices given they are so disparate yeah that's yeah so so first of all this con- customer centricity in organizations um i believe needs to be baked into your company's culture so from your CEO down, uh, it's important to make customers the center of the conversation. It's also important that you're not doing just what your customers ask, because obviously, you know, at Slack, we have so many different types of customers, that would be impossible. So it's important to synthesize the feedback and then develop a perspective on the feedback. And that perspective really comes from doing deep work with customers and collaborating closely with them as much as possible and deeply listening to them. And so you it's so so the way to do that is to establish more touch points with your customers, more direct touch points. It's it's not sufficient to hear secondhand or thirdhand what a customer might need from maybe somebody in your sales department or your customer support department. It's important for you as a product uh, maker to actually have firsthand experience with the diversity of customer types. That then helps build a level of deep empathy and intuition, and it helps you better synthesize the diversity of of points of feedback that you're likely to receive. So one of the ways that we did that um, in this process of redesigning Slack was using shared channels. And, uh, you know, I've found this to be a, um, I would say, a revolutionary experience in terms of customer centricity. And this is how we did it. We, when we were just, when we were we were creating these prototypes for a new version of Slack, we establish a shared channel with a, a separate workspace that included over thirty different companies and over a hundred different people who were Slack champions. So these are people at, wow. at, at these thirty different companies who 
um, are either Slack administrators or they're helping to roll out Slack. So they're very sophisticated Slack users. So we had them in a workspace and we had a shared channel between Slack and that workspace. And we would essentially tell them, okay, here we're going through this process of co-creation. We're going to be updating your version of Slack uh, and we would like your feedback on it on a regular basis. And we're going to you know, give you a set of guide points to then help channel the feedback towards us. So in the morning, Monday, we would send over a note. Here's the new prototype. They'd start using it. They would then give us direct feedback that morning. And because these are really, really sophisticated Slack users who care a lot about the product, we heard them very loud and clear. They would also start to have conversations with each other within that shared channel. And that was fascinating to see. And so then we started to hear from all these different types of companies about how Slack was or was not working for them. And then we'd iterate the prototype and send up a new one to them. And then we get additional feedback. And we did that over the course of three months, just this constant back and forth dialogue with, um, with these groups, uh, with this group of, of very enrolled and engaged customers. And they would give us new ideas. They would, they would lead us towards uh, new ideas and, and new opportunities to better meet their needs. And throughout the process, we iterated and adjusted the designs in order to to best meet the the needs of the group that we were working with. Now, we also worked with brand new users and understood their needs. We also worked with less sophisticated users as well. It had them in a separate shared channel. So we had a diversity of perspectives, most sophisticated to somewhat sophisticated to new to Slack. And we were able to take that, that set of diverse perspectives and just really make sure that, that the design was working for all of them in certain ways. That was a pretty transformative experience, hearing from customers literally on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, um, and, and being able to engage them not just in a one-way sort of process of them telling us things, but we were able to then have a dialogue with them and ask deeper questions about, about what was behind their, um, their perspectives on, on the prototypes. I, I just wanted to ask you for, I mean, you are in a super senior role in uh, you know, a huge uh, and very important tech company. And I know that a lot of makers, uh, even indie makers or side hustlers are probably thinking, but can I prioritize the time for that? And I just, I just thought it could be great if you could just kind of like echo on like how you made the time for that and how much value it added to the process. Cause you know, you're talking about constant interaction with this group of people. Uh, and I'm sure, especially maybe for like some solo founders out there, they're thinking yikes, but of course, you know, it must've delivered value for you. So yeah, if you could just speak on that, prioritizing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, I would say that using shared channels is is actually a very um, efficient way to get this type of feedback because, you know, you are you are very close to your customers. They're there in your Slack. <laughs> you can ask them questions. You can also, you know, set expectations that you know you may not be able to respond to them immediately. Uh, I know of a number of companies who have done just this. You know, if, if you look at their Slack workspace, they have a list of their customers in shared channels. And they are essentially developing their product with their customers in mind. And the voice of their customer is directly within their Slack workspace on a regular basis. Now, of course, again, it takes a level of management uh, to do that. But if you think of the alternative, you know, having to go on site to your customers on a semi-regular basis or having periodic phone conversations with them, how do you manage all that information? You know, how do you store it? How do you organize it? 
doing that all within shared channels and doing that all within Slack is incredibly convenient. So again, I'm, I'm just, a, I'm, I'm a, obviously a big fan of utilizing shared channels to get closer to customers, not just because I work at Slack, but because it is, you know, the, again, I think it's a revolutionary, it's revolutionary in terms of its, its ability to directly connect uh, customers uh, with businesses and then, and, and makers and, enable a well-managed bi-directional line of communication and feedback, but it's also just a commitment, right? And so I think the question is, where are you going to get the most leverage? You know, like where, when you're spending your time as a maker, especially at a smaller company, the question is, what, what can you do to get the most leverage? You know, where's your time best spent? And, and so I think that's always a, just a, it's a big challenging question because it can be, you know, time can be best spent just trying to figure out, you know, um, how to get the next round of funding. Uh, and so really it just comes down to which priorities you have. But um, fundamentally what I've seen is that the companies that have been the most successful are the ones that prioritize their customers. And so they're always, always making some time per week where people can focus on getting closer to customers. And, and it's not just the, you know, for founders, uh, it's for everybody within the company. I mean, when you, when you talk about having a customer-centered culture, it means that everybody within your com- company has a perspective on on your customers because they spend time with them. And so the challenge there is figuring out what are the right technologies to use that allow you to scale your your contact and your, and your connection with customers. So that's another reason why I think Shared Channels is such an amazing sort of revolution in terms of um, customer contact because you can invite easily invite multiple people from your organization into the shared channel and provided that they monitor it, they will be hearing from customers directly from them and potentially even having a dialogue with them on a a daily basis. Yes. I think that's such a great, yeah, just such a great anecdote, you know, sharing how you literally employed that in your own product development. And exactly as you said, like if, if makers are listening and worried that, you know, there's a risk that they may not have the time to get back to people in time. I think, you know, you made that point, just manage expectations, manage expectations of those who are participating in the channel uh, and you'll be able to get all the value that they share with their feedback and their honest reflection. So I think that's incredible. One of the things I wanted to touch on while we have you is this idea of bringing moments of delight into the way you design products. I'm thinking of how I'll click onto Slack and look at all my unreads and then kind of like make sure I've caught up with all the channels. And as I'm marking things as red, I'll suddenly get a message like, woohoo, you're all done. Here's a tractor. And I'm like, yay, not hey tractor. And it's just so fun that every now and then, you know, as someone that's been using Slack for years, I still get surprised by the app in really fun ways. And I would just love to know how these moments of delight ended up being such a top priority for the way you design the products, because I feel like there is, there is a lot for makers out there who are listening to learn from prioritizing these things, which maybe don't necessarily align with a specific metric that you're measuring, but still impact it in a meaningful way. Well, so, you know, the history of Slack, it's, it's basically a, you know, the company pivoted away from an original gaming company glitch. And I think some of the spirit of Slack came from that original start, which was essentially a gaming company. And uh, critically, there was a main writer for Glitch who came over into Slack and brought that spirit with her. Her name is Anna Picard. Uh, And I think part of Slack's real voice came from, you know, her and her ability to write and inject a level of playfulness and spirit and humanity into the product. And that became 
in the early days part of Slack's brand. And as Slack has evolved and grown, it is it is maintained. Uh, and so now it's a core part of uh, Slack's voice. And it, it's what makes Slack unique in a sea of relatively generic software brands. So that that's the I think that's the the voice behind it. And and then, you know, if you look at our mission, our mission is to make people's working lives more simple, more productive and pleasant. And so pleasant was incorporated into the mission itself. It wasn't just simple and more productive, but pleasant is a part of the mission. And so, you know, getting back to this notion of, uh, you know, communication uh, is information as well as energy. And typically software tools allow you to create new information. They're really good at being great sort of unopinionated tools, period, right? But they don't really allow you to express that level of energy. And as we discussed before, consumer tools are all about that expression of energy, of personality and spirit and opinion and perspective and nuance. And so Slack really, you know, it does combine both. It's an incredibly powerful tool for sharing information and helping people get aligned around their goals and projects and the work they're doing. But it does it in a way that allows culture of your company and and individual personalities to shine. And when you Mm. look at specifics, it's really in the design. And some of these are intentional. And I think some of the aspects are somewhat organic. They're unpredicted in terms of um, their development. But the prominence of emojis, uh, I think, is critical, right? And, uh, you know, it's like, it sounds relatively superficial, but the way that people use emojis in Slack is so, so deep. (laughs) I mean, so companies can add their own emojis, right? People can add their own emojis to Slack. And so the emojis that are added to Slack actually start to express some level of the company's culture. People use them to react to each other in unique and somewhat specific ways. And Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so over time, what that does, it it introduces this meta level of communication into Slack. So you have the words, but then those emojis are essentially shortcuts to emotions. And that's, you know, so I I just find that uh, super fascinating aspect of the product that we care about. But the question is, do we have a set of, you know, fully predictable projects that will help <laughs> help guide that into the future and and guide this this sort of the personality that Slack enables into the future to a certain degree yes to a certain degree we started to take this you know really seriously and think about our opportunities for then injecting more moments of delight into the right place and so when we think about doing that we always want to make sure that we're doing it in a respectful way in a way that doesn't interfere with people's workflows that's why when you get to the the end of your reading your messages, we give you a tractor. You're done with your work. There's the tractor. We're not getting in front of your work <laughs> with the tractor. And so that's one of the things that we think about is how can we introduce these moments in a way that doesn't distract, but that only enhances and is done in a way that's very respectful. I think it's incredible. Um, I hadn't considered how people create their own almost like company slang or language through personalized emoji. But I was reflecting on product hunt and yeah, like tons of staff members are represented as emoji, which is cool because if they say something in general and you want to big them up, you can kind of just, you know, add their face to that message. Um, And then even within our parent company, AngelList, everyone's pet, at least the cats and dogs uh, have their own emoji too. And, you know, we have dedicated channels for dogs, but it's just, it's just great because, you know, as if you're a dog owner, you can like emphasize the message by adding your pooch's face to it. And I'd never really considered how 
individuals and and also individual cultures using the tool are just creating their own little ecosystems within it through that. It's brilliant. Yeah, that is, I mean that is that is one of the I think you know intentional ways that Slack has enabled uh, cultures to uniquely sort of thrive and operate within the context of Slack is its its customizability. And so, yes, you can add your own emojis. Those emojis start taking on their own level of communication and culture within the organization. People use them in unique ways. You can also customize the color scheme and the themes within Slack. And many people like to do that. And yeah, that almost becomes like a source of judgment, at least for me, like, because we're always really remote. Uh, and then every now and then we meet up for an offsite. I'm like, oh, you use that theme. Didn't think you're an aubergine kind of guy. And it's like, I didn't think you were kind of work smart kind of girl. It's like, well, I'm really into the gray and orange. But yeah, it's really funny. It's like, you can tell something from someone's personality based on their Slack theme. And this, and this is with our new redesign, we are focused on uh, helping Slack become uh, much more customizable to the individual and the organization. So we're introducing uh, new sections where you're able to organize your channels and messages and apps into sections um, that have their own names. And you can also add an emoji before the name as well. So you can customize it even further. There's new spaces within the interface that we're allowing people to theme as well. So I have a theme that I'm using that one of our designers created called she initially called it sweet treat, but I call it tutti frutti. Anyway, it's just like nice. fun, like pink and teal theme, which honestly, I first started using it because I was, it was kind of like, oh, I'll just give this a try. It was kind of funny. I find it to be very ergonomic. Like it's pleasing to me. Amazing. <laughs> I love to work. You know, and this is one thing that we think about is that, you know, just like your workspace at work, and a lot of us now are working from home more, it's important that we custom tailor our workspaces to fit our body ergonomics and fit better for the type of work that we need to do. We think of Slack in the same way in terms of cognitive ergonomics. Um, and there are also physical ergonomics that come along with Slack as well when it comes to, for example, dark mode or when it comes to our keyboard shortcuts. But we do think about how, again, as a tool, Slack can be made sort of honed and customized so that it can be as powerful as possible or express your culture in the right way. Um, and so those are two sort of dimensions that we have definitely focused on. I love that. And you're so right. Um, personalization is so important. One of my friends works at Stripe in the New York office, and he kind of messaged me the other day. They're doing you know, forced work from home uh, in light of the virus. And he was like, I don't understand how you do this every day. I'm two days in and I hate it. And my first question was, well, what's your work environment? Like, you know, what's your setup? And, you know, he hadn't really thought through his setup yet because he was so new to it. And, you know, the first port of call is, okay, yeah, where am I going to put my computer and my desk, et cetera, et cetera. But exactly as you said, the tools that we are using throughout the day need to be optimized for our workflow too. <laughs> right. Exactly. Amazing. Um, so one kind of final point before I, I jump into my favorite part of the show where I ask you about your favorite products. Um, I know that a lot of makers will be listening and thinking, wow, um, you know, Slack have really kind of owned this idea of like bringing delight into productivity tools and bringing fun consumer elements into B2B tools. And it might be difficult to think of how one as a maker could create that element of delight without feeling a bit disingenuous, you know, without feeling like, am I just copying Slack a bit? Like, you know, throwing in some emojis and throwing in some funny jokes. And I just wondered if you could share any advice on how makers can think of finding their own unique way 
to bring elements of, you know, gameplay and just fun to the products they're building. Yeah. So first and foremost, put your customer first. And what I mean by that is um, when you're thinking about how to introduce a level of personality into your experience, um, it's important to you know, do that in a way that is um, it comes from you and what your company believes, but it also is um, reflective of your customers and that brings them into the conversation. Um, so that's the first one. Put your customer first. Second one is is bake this notion of uh, delight or making your experience more pleasant. The idea of you know cognitive ergonomics, bake it into your mission, uh, and then ideally your mission will inform your brand, and then people can align around the mission. They can align around the brand pillars, and it gives uh, folks across your your company more of a sort of guiding direction. Then. I yes. think what's critical, and this is, you know, I think this is hard to do, but super important, is to prioritize hiring somebody who writes with tone and personality and make this person one of your early hires. Um, <laughs> I love that. You need, you, need, you need a maker who shapes the voice. You don't need managers to shape your voice. Um, you need somebody who is able to really think of your customers first that your customers are their first and foremost sort of clients uh, and then who can translate your customer's perspective into your own unique uh, tone and personality. And so these things, you know, they're not artificial. They have to actually come from some human who's translating your company's mission, your brand, your, you know, customer's perspective and their voice and what they are interested in hearing. And then your own unique sort of flavor of, of company culture into something that works <laughs> and that, uh, you know, and that, that works for you and that ends up working for your customers as well. Uh, and, and that's that. a special skill, you know, within uh, software industry, oftentimes these people are called copywriters or content strategists, but it's important that you find somebody who uh, can write in a way that brings forward this voice and personality and they can help guide the creative direction of your, of your product that you're making. I think that's an incredible toolkit to share. Um, extremely valuable. Thank you so much. And I love that you have valued the skill behind, you know, very creative writing. Um, because a lot of the times, you know, as makers, especially if we are indie makers, side hustlers, don't have a ton of budget, we try to wear all the hats. Uh, but I think you're right. There's uh, so much value in, in sourcing those talented folks who are just extremely talented wordsmiths. Um, so yeah, thanks for putting the spotlight on that. So I know I could probably spend all day talking to you and picking your brains for our community, but sadly you have to go back to your job. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, you know, being the Product Hunt podcast, to share some of your favorite products with us. We always love hearing recommendations. It might be part of the stack that you alluded to earlier. Maybe it's something you just got at home. Could be a piece of software. Could be a physical product. This is your chance to share with us. Okay, great. So let's see. I'll, I'll start with one that is more about sort of fun and creativity. I recently purchased a um, small synthesizer called an OPZ from a company called Page Instruments. And this is one of my favorite products uh, for a number of reasons. One is it's very well designed. It's a very beautiful product. Teenage Engineering has a very specific way of, 
of designing, um, industrial designing as well as software designing. And it just looks and feels incredible. It's super simple, but extremely powerful. Um, there's a lot of power that's baked into this portable device and they levered the smartphone and tablet for what they're good for. So you get this like really great screen interface that allows you to adjust all of the parameters in your synth. Um, and so when I travel, this is really like, it's a fun tool to take around, you know, to just play and, and create some music really quickly. And when we talk about uh, giving people superpowers, I found that once I was able to learn the workflow for this, for the OPZ, it really did give me superpowers. And I, and I was able to create like some electric electronic music that I was like really into. Um, so it's just a product that I love. Like, and, and it, I love it because the design is uh, simple. It gives me superpowers and uh, it's also sort of an iconic design as well. Oh yeah. Very cool. I'm looking at one on teenage engineering site now. I'm like, oh, yeah, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good distraction. Um, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Let's see the other, uh, the other one that I'll highlight is, and this is more of a generic product. It's a spatula. I find spatulas to be incredible tools. And absolutely. I have an OXO spatula and the rubber on it is like absolutely amazing. It just seems to stick to the materials and get into like different crevices. I do a lot of ceramics and part of doing ceramics uh, and pottery is mixing glazes. And so when you're creating different types of glazes, a spatula is one of your number one tools. And so I spent a lot of <laughs> trying to find like just the perfect spatula and, um, my OXO spatula is um, is outstanding, and I, I love it as a, as a role. I mean, I'm giving you a, a virtual hat tip for being the first person to actually recommend something that falls outside of the usual expectations of a tech podcast. The spatula, yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are these, <laughs> these are these are products and tools that you need to use on a regular basis. And I would say the last one, and this is kind of cheeky, is I, I, I honestly like I do find you know, I've talked a lot about shared channels and how powerful that is it, as an actual sort of like product feature. To me, that is just, it's so exciting um, because it really, it really is so useful when it comes to ensuring that I understand the voice of my customers and understand my customers' perspectives. You know, it's, it's a essential tool for the kind of work that I do. And for people who are interested in connecting with their customers, you know, it is, I think, the best tool that you can use to have bi-directional real-time feedback provided that you set expectations. And so, you know, if I'm thinking about a tool that I use for work, that one is, you know, it is one of my uh, recent favorite tools. I love that. That's incredible. Ethan, thank you so much for sharing all this incredible information and insight and experience with our community today. I'm so grateful. Um, for folks who are listening and want to find out more from you, um, follow up all these exciting updates happening in Slack, where should they go? So where, where people can go to um, to follow you know, Slack and, and the exciting things that we're doing and my perspective on design in the world, um, they can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, at E Eisman. It's two E's and two N's. And so I do, you know, I, I, I post regularly, frequently. Um, and so looking forward to sharing my perspective with folks in the world. Amazing. Ethan, thanks again for being on the show. All right. Great. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, 
Share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.